0: Hi, I'm Christopher Ward, and this is Famous Lost Words. Every week, we unearth the best moments from classic interviews with the greatest artists of all time. Joining me as always, my co-host and the creator of our show, Tom Jokic. Hey, Christopher. Okay, this is going to be a doozy.
1: We've got some great stuff again this week. I want to start with an interview from 2010-2011 with Prince. Did you ever get a chance to interview Prince? I did not. And and I'm not surprised at that answer, because so few people did. He did so very few interviews. He was promoting a song that he was releasing, and we kind of got the world premiere of mm. this song and an interview with him for the agreement that we would play the heck of this song. Ha- what heck song, of this song. Oh, boy. I think it was called Extra Lovable. But anyway, he, we were playing this song, and part of our deal was... You play this song a lot, and we will get you an interview with Prince. Now, of course, Prince had a connection to Toronto um, because he lived here for quite a number of years, and was he,
0: he was married to a woman from Toronto. Uh, Is he
1: not? Yes, I, yes, I believe that's true. Anyway, so more on that in a few minutes. But that that interview, you know, we did in 2010 or 2011, and of course, we reran it in the day after he passed away because it was, mm. uh, you know, that was such a tragic time, and we wanted to relive a, a you know a happier moment with him um, when we did that. So so we're going to play it for you today. Also, we've got Robert Plant and one of my favorite quotes of any artist when he's talking about his old catalog. So we'll hear that a little bit later. <laughs> yeah, you know what is, I'm talking I do. about? This
0: is really, it, really cool.
1: It is. It's it's funny and it's cynical and it's it, and it's just great. It's hilarious.
0: I got a good Plant story for you.
1: Oh, that's right. You do. Okay, okay. good. And also, uh, because I wanted to break away from the the rock and roll mode, we 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 do a lot of rock artists, but I'll, I want to. I want to uh, play for you this interview with Culture Club um, from very early on in their career, and it's a it's a terrific one, and it just reminds you what a great interview subject boy George was oh yeah he's fantastic just fantastic yeah for sure so we've got that coming up and um, a little segment right at the end about a couple of one hit wonders uh, will surprise you as to who they are but they really are one hit wonders and it's uh, <laughs> who and it's, <laughs> and it's both clips that we have are very interesting and great let's uh, turn to Prince now okay what do you ask Prince? Like, there's so many things that you can talk to him about, but mostly he wanted to focus on this new song. He wanted to focus on uh, the concert that he was about to do uh, in town. I believe it was that night. So, there's not a lot of really revelatory groundbreaking stuff that he talks about in fact he's kind of quiet on this but i just love it we got a chance to, to talk to him he's on the phone at first he's quiet and then you can hear him kind of picking up the tempo a little bit and getting a little bit more into the conversation and here he is right now speaking with roger ashby and Marilyn dennis
2: thanks so much for talking to us we're so excited about your concerts this weekend Yeah, and I understand that in each case, and I've seen you many times, you change up the show, so what you decide to do tonight might be a little bit different than uh, maybe tomorrow night. Am I right on that? Absolutely.
3: There's a lot of songs we know now, and uh, it's uh, up to the audience. If they give us energy, then we return it.
4: So do you just make up a set as you go, or do you have a set list?
3: Uh, We have a set list, but there's so many songs that... um, You know, you vibe off the audience. If they're uh, really excited, then sometimes I'll switch it up and just start the kick drum pattern, which usually leads into any number of
4: fast tunes that we do. We played your brand-new song yesterday. We were the first uh, radio station in the world, and we thank you for that, for allowing us to be the first to play it. A fantastic song. Got some great response to it immediately. Oh, great.
3: It's an older track that I did. Well, during the 1999 sessions and
2: uh wow
3: the album 1999 so that would be 82 somewhere around there we did a lot of music as much as we could back during that time so that it would be you know just coasting during this period so i just pull out some of these tracks from time to time we either play them live or give them to the
4: people you know So when you released it uh, just recently, you didn't add anything to it or or change it in any way from when it was first done?
3: Um, We changed the words around, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I feel differently in being one of Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't use some of the same language or themes that I used to, but at the same time, uh, it is the same person, so, you know, you get an updated feel to it. Wow. Which
2: what you know on on some sites they say they ask people what their favorite uh, print songs are of all time. What are your favorite songs that you have written and, and performed? Uh, the next one.
3: <laughs> ah, 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 that's a
2: good answer. I love it.
3: <laughs> um, I always enjoy the favorites too, and revamping them and trying them different ways with different musicians. You know, cause you you always hear new things
4: with them. So can you tell us what we can expect at your concerts tonight and tomorrow night? Anything, uh, any little, uh, any little teasers you want to give us?
3: Uh, well, you know, we live to get funky, so it's going to be pretty powerful from song one. And uh, like I say, with the audience, as long as they're there, we'll stay. We have enough material to play three, four hours, you know.
2: That's amazing. I hope you play three to four hours.
3: Uh, you say that until you get up the next morning.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I had no voice the last time you were here. You brought on Nelly Furtado on stage and you kept playing and playing and I thought I had no voice the next day. I had such a great time.
3: I haven't seen her in a minute. What's up with her?
2: She is working on a new album that's coming out in the spring and uh, she sings your praises all the time. Oh yeah,
4: she's a sweetheart. Now you have quite a strong Toronto connection. Uh, Everybody knows that you once lived here for a period of time. What was it about Toronto that that drew you here?
3: I really dug the... um of in the fact that, uh, you know, they were so anti-establishment.
4: <laughs> By the way, I, um, I met the gardener who used to landscape your property when you lived in Toronto, and he said to say hello. Oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> We've had
2: a lot of people connect from all over the world knowing that you were going to be on with Chum FM today. Is there anything you want to say to your fans?
3: Well, I just want them to come out to the shows because uh, it's a lot different than before. Mm-hmm. It's longer, louder, and uh, a lot more party atmosphere I was on my way back to this place and I've been looking forward to being here so it's so much fun uh it's it's a good a good night
4: out. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. We've been uh, promoting this and talking about it all morning, and we've had people worldwide tweeting tweet, yes. tweeting about the fact that you were going to be on with us today. So we really appreciate such it.
2: Such a buzz! Well, and thank you so much for continuing to make great music and touring because it's just such a pleasure to talk to you, but even more so to see you perform. Oh, my
3: pleasure! Thank you all so
1: much. So there you go, soft-spoken Prince. Of, it's so warm. Yeah.
0: He was one he was I know what you mean. He is very low-key, but yeah. that's in any interview I've heard, that's typical. Yes. But at the same time, he's very engaged, just quietly. You know,
1: and it, it is funny because when he first starts talking, you're going, oh man, he's really not into this, right? And then at one point, Roger says, I know the guy who used to be the gardener at your place. <laughs> that and, was excellent. And, and, it's, and it's funny because Prince goes, okay, here we go. Like this is the kind of garbage that he doesn't want to talk about, but it was a very funny moment and thankfully, you know, we we don't go deep into the dirty the dirty laundry of what Prince puts in his garden and that kind of stuff. But but it was a lot of fun and his reaction is perfect in that moment. Christopher how many times did you see Prince in
0: concert? I saw him three times. Mm-hmm. I saw the nineteen ninety nine Tour and the Love Sexy Tour, which are two of the best shows I have ever yeah, seen. Yeah. But I also saw a show that was utterly unique. And it was, I was out, um, it was on my birthday, I was having lunch downtown, and my friend Dave Kynes, who was running Much Music at the time, called me up and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm having lunch on my birthday, why? He says, come on down. I'm like, okay. He says, now. I'm like, (laughs) I'd never gotten that call from him, and he's a trusted source. I'm like, okay. And I came down, and sure enough, Prince was performing in the the studio to like 100 people. Oh, that's amazing. And so I'm standing, you know, as far as I am from Adam, from Prince, and, I, you know, it's like you don't even dare to breathe. Yeah. It was so forceful. and yes. And just a, a staggeringly great performance. He did like a half a dozen songs.
1: I probably saw him five or six times. I was possibly, like, he was probably... Probably my favorite artist uh through all of the 80s from uh the 1999 album all the way to the uh the symbol album with Mm -hmm. the album that he did my name is prince that was you know the his heyday in my opinion uh and but i saw him a few times after that and the shows were just sensational and um and you know i followed him very closely was just, just devastated uh by the by the time he passed away and um Uh, One of the reasons, uh, you know, the interview that you just heard, we re-ran that the day after he passed away. And it was still such a shock because uh, Marilyn Dennis, who was part of that interview, had just seen him perform three weeks earlier. Ah. And so... Oh, was it one of those solo shows he did? It it was, yeah, the show he did at the Sony Center about three weeks before he died. And that's, like, it's just stunning that that vibrant guy and he was still vibrant in the show you know he walked with a he walked with a walking stick but it was almost more of a prop Hmm. and he he didn't look like he was weak you know according to what she told me and three weeks later he's dead and it's just tragic yeah it's a loss
0: Who have we got now? Well, Tom, you and I, we've been talking about print shows and so on, but we have seen a lot of artists at the many, many stages of their careers, Mm -hmm. from the neophyte to the veteran. And to me, it's always interesting to see how they deal with that roller coaster and with the changing reactions to their work. It's really interesting to see the ones whose past success is so big that it looms like a giant shadow over everything that follows. Right, McCartney, you see him perform? He plays the songs exactly as we remember them right and And it's and you're thankful for that yes bob dylan reinvents his catalog on a nightly basis to the point that songs classic songs are barely recognizable. well and have you seen him in the last 10 or 15 years i saw him two years ago okay he was on my daughter's bucket list right
1: right and (laughs) was it not one of the best and one of the worst shows you've ever seen at the same time you know, I was prepared for it. It right. was fantastic.
0: He was in great voice. Oh and, good. Yeah. No, it was really, really good.
1: <laughs> because like you said, I think he I, I think we were three minutes into a song and I went, Oh my god, that's like a rolling stone. Like <laughs> that may be my favorite song of all time. And I didn't recognize it for three minutes. Yeah. But when it was
0: all said and done, I was thrilled to have seen Dylan. I respect the yeah. fact that he's not going to be a jukebox. Yeah. For sure. That's for sure. That's just who he is. You have to accept that when you go to the show. Absolutely. Um Robert Plant will always have to deal with the beloved songs from his glorious past in Led Zeppelin. And he's used various tactics, sort of incorporating a history that his fans are still hungry for. Okay, Christopher, hold that thought.
1: We're going to hear from Robert Plant in just a second. First of all, I want to remind you that you can hear past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app and
0: iTunes. Famous Lost Words is brought to you by Alarm Force. Managing your home is a lot of work, but securing it doesn't have to be. Let the professionals at Alarm Force take home security off your to-do list. With Alarm Force, you can rely on professional installation, dependable products, and industry-leading customer service. They provide protection for burglary, fire, and flood with a suite of smart home products like door locks, lighting, and thermostat, all controlled from anywhere in the world with the Alarm Force mobile app. No charge for installation with packages starting from only $29.99. Call 1-800-267-2001 or learn more at AlarmForce.com.
1: Great song, Robert Plant with In The Mood. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at FamousLostPod. Okay, Christopher, you've got another clip of Robert Plant, and here he is talking about whether or not to play the old Led Zeppelin songs in his live act.
5: If you think about it, Jimmy Page has played with me before. Uh, there's Zeppelin samples all over the place, and uh, I've been playing Zeppelin songs at every free gig I've ever done, every, every kind of charity concert that I've done, with Page and without him, uh, for every children's hospital and so on that's ever required my services. The only thing is that now uh, uh, I'm just deciding to do it in the kind of mainstream of my career. The reason being that I'm working with young musicians who do not feel any intimidation by walking into that sphere of music. Uh, the previous band that I had with Robbie Blunt were all around the same age as Zeppelin musicians, you know. So they, <coughs> in fact, would have to be emulating people of their own ilk. Whereas Doug Ball's 24 years old, his guitarist, and he's hot, Mm. and he doesn't have any kind of problem playing a Led Zeppelin tune. And Phil Johnson, the keyboard player, said to me, boy, if you you wrote the lyrics, you wrote the melodies, you sang the songs, where's your problem? Mm. And I went in the corner, I thought, I wrote the lyrics, I sang the songs, I wrote the melodies, where's my problem? And I came out of the corner and I said, I I don't actually have a problem. (laughs) Why the hell have I been denying it for so long? Basically, I wanted to distance myself from the whole thing so that I could get a bit of... So that I and anybody who cares to listen to my work might say, well, okay, that was that. But he's moving along, you know.
0: So there you are. Now, another part of Plant's past that's always coming up is his relationship with Jimmy Page. Now, here in this next clip, he sort of reacts ambivalently to Page's band, The Firm, formed with vocalist Paul Rogers, but he ends up on a positive note.
5: Jimmy didn't have the facility or the, or the, um, the desire to go out on the street and pull people into line and say, come on, let's, I want to play. You know? And if he did, he ended up with a bunch of uh, guys who perhaps had seen it all before. And if you work with people who've seen it all before, then the whole thing tends to be somewhat jaded. You haven't got the freedom of expression because you're having to take into account other people with big egos like Paul Rogers, you know. So I think the second Firm album, although it wasn't a a great, there weren't a lot of great songs on it, rather like Shaken and Stirred, you know. It was a big album for me, but it wasn't a lot of pop songs. But I think some of his guitar playing on that was incredible. So, one more question. A Plant uh, was asked what Zeppelin songs
0: he would be playing on the tour. Uh Uh-oh.
5: I don't know. I'll have to wait and see what you fancy doing. But it won't be that long, boring bugger. (laughs) (laughs) Come on.
0: That long,
1: boring bugger? He just called Stairway to Heaven. (laughs) That long, boring bugger. Okay, what a cranky old bugger he is. Oh, (laughs) he's
0: he's a funny, funny guy. I have a Plant story for you. When uh, Alana was on tour with Robert as his opening act. They were uh, a couple for a while, shall we say? Yes, yes. And, um... He was. He We're was talking really, about Atlanta
1: Miles here for anybody who's new to the game here. Okay, he go. was
0: really fun to hang out with because I was on a lot of that tour. And he'd have dinner with the crew members and everything. Very, very loose, easygoing guy. Anyway, he invited me and a few of my friends to join he and Atlanta at Spago Restaurant, which at the time, was that was Wolfgang Puck's sort of first restaurant. You know, he's the celebrity chef. Mm-hmm. And it was a very prestigious place to go. Mm-hmm. So we go, and it's kind of like, if you could imagine having dinner with Henry Eighth. It's like he's carrying <laughs> you yeah, know more wine for all my friends <laughs> in, the, uh, in the court you know it's like that yes. kind of having dinner with him and I was sitting right beside him and it was it was hilarious I mean he just he knows how to carry the moment okay Yeah So at one point um Wolfgang Puck who's trying desperately to curry favor brings out a pizza because that was what he served in the shape of a double-necked guitar. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) Which I loved. Anyway, the dinner goes on and on and so then he and Alana are sort of swanning around the room saying hi to various people and stuff and so I'm there and among my friends is Mike Myers. He's at the dinner as well. Wow. And every time plant says something outrageous he and I look at each other and pretend to be taking notes right (laughs) during the whole dinner I think Mike might have used those notes later on in the Austin (laughs) Powers stuff but I mean so anyway finally at the end of the night you know they're busy doing their thing and and I'm thinking this is one of the weirdest nights I've ever experienced and we go out to the valet parking and who's there but Don Rickles and his <laughs> wife. And he's saying to her, he's like, hey, honey, do you know who that was in there? That was Led Zeppelin. Yeah, the guy with the broad and the hair. Yeah, we were, hey, we were having dinner with Led Zeppelin. You know what that guy is, don't you, honey? He's like, I'm thinking, I, this didn't really happen. I'm just oh making this God. up as it goes along. Hey, yes. So, and one more, just little button on the story. Yeah. He stuck me with the bill. No way. He did. He did.
1: Oh, my God. It was worth it. Wow! So he's dating Alana, and he sticks you with the bill
0: <laughs> after inviting me to dinner that's, at Spago.
1: Oh, that's great! Can I, I ask think it's how the much, most expensive dinner? I've well, ever. Well, well, how much? How many people were there in total? Oh, There's like six of us. Okay, and how much was that bill? Do you remember? No idea. Okay, <laughs> it's best forgotten. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. But there was a singe mark on the edge of my credit card. When oh I got no, it back. kidding! Yeah, yeah, it's smoking. It's smoking. <laughs> that's back in the day when you would give them your credit card. They you wouldn't right. you wouldn't have one of those machines at the table. Wow, that's amazing. You know, it's funny that you mentioned. Alana with Robert, because I have an Alana Miles interview uh, from around the time when she's with Robert Plant, and she talks about him to such a great degree that they're actually, like, it sounds like they're going to be you know, moving in together, living together and taking up long term. And I always wondered what happened in that situation. But it's interesting that you were there while they were going out. And this is, of course, after you had dated her for a very, very long Mm -hmm. period of time. So that's a fascinating story. And maybe if I can dig up that interview, we'll we'll play part of that too. Wow, this is great. (laughs) I get so excited sometimes. That may be, by the way, that's so far my best story from you. (laughs) Adam, was that not the best story? <laughs> Adam is shaking his head, his hair is flying all over the place. Yeah, it's you wacky. can't believe it
0: it's it's wacky
1: seriously. we are all freaking out here about uh, about Christopher's story about Robert Plant and we're going, okay, so what was he like? What's he like was like you know, was he a rock star like did he act like one so tell tell
0: us what he was like at that dinner. Well, he was at at the dinner he was like he always is, which is sort of larger than life mm-hmm. just by nature, right. But he's also sweet and funny as hell and he's a real he's a clown there's a joker sort of quality about him. Oh really? He, okay. He loves life. He's just he's full of ideas. He wants to talk about music and and ideas and books and yeah, I I just found him a, a really lovely guy to to spend time with, and he was great to the crew. You were saying, yeah, I mean, you know, they have the big sort of tables backstage. Nobody the, knows for, this except the crew. Except meals. you, okay, well, I don't, the, You I don't know, know, there's always a, a crew meal break okay. after they've set up and okay. done sound check, and then sure. before the actual show begins, they have a tent sometimes if it's outdoors, whatever, uh-huh. and you know, big long tables for catering. As he happily sits with the crew and eats, I mean, he's not like a snob mm-hmm. at all, really. So. It was it was very refreshing to see, and I'm, I mean, my observation is, and I, you know, I've met a few of the rock stars from doing the interviews, is that the biggest ones often are like that. They they go out of their way to put you at ease. McCartney was like that. I remember when I met him, I had a jacket that for some reason had uneven lapels. Walked right up to me, "Hey, how are you?" Grabs the, the lapels and says, "Oh, we're going to have to fix this, aren't we?" He starts like tugging <laughs> on my jacket. And what happens is it has the effect of immediately breaking down any sort of, you know, weirdness because he knows he's the most famous pop artist of all time. Right. And that people, you know, come into the room yes. with expectation and maybe even a little intimidation yeah. you know, based on his history. And I, I love when, when someone does that. And by
1: and by disarming that, by letting that kind of you know by by putting a needle into that balloon, it, it lets everybody breathe easier, I think. With... Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Wow. We're all freaking out about that story. That, that is the best story of you, Mike Myers, Alana Miles, and Robert Plant at dinner. That's great. Eating a pizza in the shape of a double neck guitar. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here we are. Uh, so we're really changing gears right about now with an interview from the early 80s uh, with Boy George and John Moss from Culture Club. So have a listen to this. Boy George and John Moss from Culture Club in conversation with Rick Ringer. So, uh, what's, what's the uh, the
6: first exposure to the United States and North America in general been like? Has it? Been, well, uh,
7: um, obviously Canada considers itself, you know, its own, its own place. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. I, I mean, the, the reaction in America has been very good, generally. People, you know, like, give you ideas of what it's going to be like, but it's never the same. You know, we came here and we thought people would react differently. People have reacted exactly the same here as they do in England. Really? I think if you... In fact, the thing I find most fascinating is that the more normal people look and the more, like, conventional they look, the more they seem to like the music. (laughs) And the places we play where people are very hip and they're dressed like me and they're hip to London, they're very sort of cool and it's very sort of, you know, I "I I dress up too, I'm not going to get excited. Uh So generally, people that actually like music do enjoy the concerts, which for for us is a a good thing because we don't really want to preach the converted. It's not a, you know, you don't want to tell people, it's like if you do... If you're a priest or something, and every week you're preaching to the same people, and you never get anyone new, it can get a bit boring, you know. Uh-huh.
6: What about uh, those who do uh, go around in, in Boy George costume? I guess you'd have to call mm-hmm. it. Does that bother you, or are you no. flattered? Or uh... no, because it must I... be a little strange to see all these Boy George clones running around. You well, it's know, more, at your it's
7: more. Um, it's more. adamant in England. You know, people do it more there. I think that uh, it's good. You know, I think it's nice. I don't see. I don't really take myself that seriously. I don't believe that people start things anyway. I think it's all a rehash of styles that have gone before. So I don't really sort of, I don't think to myself, oh, you know, we're not one of these bands generally that say, oh, we started this music, you know, and we we revolutionised this image. I mean, we don't believe in that rubbish. I think things happen, and uh, they always happen.
6: And they happen in cycles?
7: Yeah, you know, I think people, I mean, if you look at me and then you look at Liberace, you know, it's like we're, both, we're both quite glamorous in our own way. Uh-huh. <laughs> Definitely.
6: Now I know your your pre music background was a theatre background in makeup and in uh, yeah, but that was that such. was very
7: short. I mean, I've done several jobs, but basically, I've before I started Culture Club, you know, with John and uh, Mikey and Roy, mm-hmm. I've basically did anything I could to get money. You know, well, obviously, there's a few things I didn't do, <laughs> <laughs> folks. Better qualify that, yes. <laughs> but I did. Uh, I did makeup. I did anything which I could. I thought, you know, I just tried. I was like a jack-of-all-trades, you know, I did, um, I even worked for my father for a while, my father's a builder, that only lasted three weeks, though. Uh-huh.
6: <laughs> Weren't the carpenter type, eh? Yeah. No,
7: just like, I just, I'm very, I'm sort of one of these people that talk a lot and don't do a lot of work.
6: Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Culture club drummer John is with us as well. John, you're really quite a veteran of the uh, the London scene. Yeah, all, for... old man of rock, yeah, uh-huh. at 25. <laughs> yeah. Um,
8: yeah, well, I played, um, I played with The Clash and The Damned, and I did something with Adam and the Ants. Mm-hmm. That was in the punk rock days.
6: That's when everybody was just kind of... It was almost in a very incestuous sort of thing where everybody was well, be- playing with everybody more It became...
8: The whole idea of, of punk rock originally was to, to break out of the superstar syndrome which was happening. You know, you were either played in a pub or you are a superstar band or an ultra-superstar band. But obviously, punk rock became exactly the same. Mm-hmm. You know, you had these the granddaddies of punk rock walking round together and the rest could go to hell. Oh, but what happened to me is it became I d- very cliquey then. yeah i did that yeah. for four years and i got frustrated with the music and it, it went on for too long punk rock you know it never stopped so i just got out for two years and, it, and then uh well i met george and it was great because we both had the same ideas do you ever
6: get any flack for playing the sort of music you're playing now as opposed to well, a really hard-edged
8: uh, punk uh, probably a few people have asked me about it but i don't really it doesn't really bother me it doesn't concern me you know i'm not playing for sort of other people's benefit obviously uh-huh. i think
7: one of the things which is it's very don't easy believe in to dogma do. no, it's very easy to write a song for 10 people it's very hard to write a song for ten million people. Yeah, but it's easy to impress your friends, but I think if you want to impress your mother and your little sister, so that's right. A there was a, there job. was an
8: attitude which I think people got wrong is that if you're playing in a room with ten of your friends and they say you're great, they think, "Wow, we got something going." You know, it's happening. But as George said, it, it, it's it's much harder to there write was, a song that's going to sell three million than yeah, to impress to, ten friends.
7: But when we started this band, we talked a lot, you know, initially with ourselves, you know, so we knew what we wanted. We knew that we wanted to be commercial and that we wanted to be pop. Mm-hmm. popular, you know, like, we don't want people saying, oh yeah, you know, like, I can really understand what you're, you know, what you're trying to Your say. Your deep man. hidden message. Yeah. No, you know, there there is certainly... I'm sure ingredient- you get that though, No, right? there are certain ingredients, it's almost like James Dean, there was a programme in England about James Dean and there was this, like, girl and she was saying, when you were in that film, man I just knew exactly what you were thinking, and he was saying no, 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 you don't. It was I'm a film was saying, film." it saying I was, a, f- it was yeah. a film, and I think you can get reality and image and the whole thing completely out of context I mean, the thing is you were saying, like, the new music thing. In England, when we started this band, we never... Well, number one, we didn't associate with anyone. We broke this band on the own. We played pubs. People were spitting at me, throwing glasses at me and calling me all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Right, And we stood up there and we played what we had to do. We did our job. And basically, that's what we do now. You know, we don't, we're not part of the new music... You know, there are bands that wish to associate, and I think it's probably easier for them to associate with other groups. But with us, I think if if what we're doing doesn't stand up for itself, then we might as well give up. So really, what we're doing is we are culture club, you know, in the same way that the police are the police. And, you know, whoever is whoever. We're not part of a new music trend, Mm -hmm. you know. know, I think what happens with new romantic things and punk rock things, you get ten bands fighting for one sound, and I think that's you know that's negative. It's We're not positive. Always,
8: you know? always. Also, it's very important to know what you want as well. Because if you go to a record company and, and they offer you a deal, you go. Uh, yeah, alright then, you know, you've know, you got to know what you want and we've always known what we want so you can maintain control over <laughs> yeah, it well, well, exactly, yes. we've always known what we want released and we've always said that from the start and we've never tried to categorise ourselves and we don't let people categorise us either because that leads to sort of nothing it leads to a dead end, doesn't it? You
6: said you were uh, working in the pubs and basically working on a grassroots level, I guess mm. building your audience, but there had to yeah. be a, cer- a certain point where the British press picked up on you No, and, well, what, uh, what
7: actually happened was I don't know if you know, but in England I know that it's
6: uh, well, here today, ge- gone tomorrow is yeah. The the
7: general press, the thing that happened in England is is during that whole new romantic period, and there was like the post punk thing, there was a lot of bands coming up, and there were certain trendy journalists that were writing complete garbage like Ernest Hemingway stuff about these bands that hadn't played. You know, they just had these great clothes and they just didn't exist. You know, like when they played, people said, Is this what what we came to see? So we thought we'd just go out and play to ordinary people and see what the reaction was. Mm -hmm. And the reaction got better, you know, obviously, as we got better. The audience has got better, and eventually, what happened to us was a complete stroke of luck. We were playing miles and miles out of the town in a place called South End. and um, one of the guys from Virgin Publishing was on holiday to see his parents, and he popped into this club and he saw us. Now we weren't brilliant by any means, but the guy thought there was potential, mm-hmm. and eventually tracked me down, and uh, we went in the studio. And what we did was um, John went to a lot of rec- there was a buzz then. As soon as one record company says, "Hey, you know, have you heard of this culture club?" there was a buzz. So John went round representing the band to all these companies and basically they were saying can we hear the demo and John says well if you want to hear the demo then you you pay for the studio so we just kept getting the studio practice Mm -hmm. because we thought that it would be the best idea to go in the studio and keep working in the studio because a lot of bands go in first time release their first record and it's like complete the, the, Druss, the transition
8: <laughs> from live to studio is quite a big difference, and it's uh, something you've got to make sure you get right. You know? So you took
6: it all step by step. Yeah, basically. well, that was
7: basically John's idea. You
6: yeah. know? Uh, would Stevie Wonder be uh, a contemporary influence? You I think to?
7: that um, one of the things which I've um, one of the things which happens with a lot of singers is they, they start a band and they want to sound like Bowie. They want to sound like you know, uh-huh. very like they hear something which they like, and everything they do reflects their their. You know what they like you know like their favorite singer with me there's so many people that i do like like i like gene pitney tom jones i like cliff richard is one of their i don't know if you, do you know cliff richard oh yeah yeah, oh, yeah. he's a big english thing i think he's got big here. Oh yeah and definitely. i like tommy winna i like dolly parton i like everything but i like michael jackson and i like the stylistics type stuff philadelphia soul mm-hmm. but one of the things which is good about Stevie Wonder is that a lot of white people don't do is that they sing a note and then they'll change it halfway through so they'll sort of go, sort of like Sly and the Family Stone type stuff, which is what a lot of singers don't do. They don't develop technique. They develop a voice, but it's always a mimic of somebody else. Mm-hmm. And I, one of the things that I never wanted to do is sound like David Bowie. You know, right. As much as I think he's got a, a very good style, I wouldn't like to sound like him because I think that, you know, I like the more traditional stuff, you know, like sort of 24 Hours from Tulsa and... You know. But then I like Foreigner as well, so there's so many, you know, <laughs> I think, you know that record... You heard it here, folks. So <laughs> yes. no, you know that record yeah. by Foreigner, Waiting for a Girl Like You. Yeah. That is like so, so mm. close to soul. I think people don't yeah. realize it, you know, it's almost like a soul record.
1: Soul is the key for you then. Right now. I think so, yeah. yeah. There you go. What a great interview. Boy George, John Moss, and uh, the interviewer is Rick Ringer, Early 80s Culture Club. George was so
0: cool in that interview. I love how he lists his um, influences. They're not typical... Of what a lot of his contemporaries would refer to, right? Like, it seemed to me that every band that I talked to in that era, you know, whether it was New Order or Human League or whatever, they all referred to craftwork and then chic. It was like <laughs> they wanted to be something or ABC, like something in between yeah. those those two poles. Yeah,
1: Duran Duran were like that, weren't they? Like they exactly they, they were as influenced by disco as anything else.
0: Right. Yeah. Even when disco wasn't cool, right? They kind of made it cool. Mm-hmm. But Boy George, he goes back to another era, a much more lush era. He's talking about people like Gene Pitney. Yes. When was the last time you heard somebody say Gene Pitney was a big influence? Exactly. And how about the other one, Cliff Richards? Mm -hmm. Who claims Cliff Richards as an influence? For sure. For sure.
1: And around that time, when they first broke out, there were very few interviews as good as Boy George. He was just terrific. He was well-spoken. He was opinionated. He was just cranky enough to be a little bit edgy but he was also open minded and kind enough with 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 interviewers and a great performer with a great voice i'm not sure all those songs stand up as well as i thought they were going to at the time because i thought some of those songs were Perfect pop songs. And some of them still are. For the Miss, moment, maybe. Miss huh? Me Blind, Time mm-hmm. Clock of the Heart, uh, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? Those were great pop songs.
0: Karma Chameleon.
1: Karma Chameleon. Oh, That's <laughs> oh, I love. It. Yes. But uh, that just the cheesiness of that <laughs> kind of kills it for me. But still. Cheese. I'll tumble for oh, uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. And so, you know, some of the songs stand up a little bit better than uh, than some of the other ones, but he was a great interview. And uh, by the way, his comeback, The Crying Game was excellent. Mm-hmm. That was produced by one of the Pet Shop Boys, I think, and that was a great song in itself. And that song that you're hearing right there is 8675309 by Tommy Two Tone. Maybe not one of your favorite songs from the
0: '80s, Christopher. I barely remember it. I'm but sorry.
1: It was a big pop record, one-hit wonder. Band name was Tommy Two Tone. There was a guy named Tommy in the band, but his name was Tommy Heath. They had uh, the band name was Tommy Two Tone. Their second
0: album was Tommy Two Tone Two. It was not. Yes, it was. Oh, and then the third album was Tommy Two Tone Two, spelled T-O-O.
1: That's like Dumb and Dumber Two, T-O. Okay, the reason why we're playing that is we got a couple of clips from them. You know, if if I told you at the very beginning of the show we're talking to Tommy Tutone, we might have lost a few listeners, but... Yeah, you want to hold back uh, on that that's, one, right? That's right. But really, uh, uh, the clips that I'm about to play are, are just terrific. Now, this is Jim Keller. Uh, he's the guitarist with the band, and uh, right off the bat, he talks about not being a new wave band.
9: When we made the first record, it was during the big uh, attitude scare of the uh late 70s you know early 80s in other words that was the during the big uh let's all tone it down to four pieces and 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 just make the record sound like demos and have everybody cop an attitude uh you know during the knack attack and uh all that stuff that was going on and i think that you know tommy and i never wanted to do that we never really did that but I, I think that we are definitely, uh, whether we liked it or not, we were kind of influenced by that movement in the sense that the record company, you know, they wanted us to sound just the way we sounded, which was like kind of, you know, kind of a you know a bad band playing some good songs with a good lead singer, you know,
10: mm-hmm. which
9: a lot of what was happening right then is you had a lot of these kind of new wave bands. And we never really were a new heavy new wave band, but I think that we sort of, there was a lot of pressure to head in certain directions,
1: you know. That's interesting on a couple of levels. <laughs> Christopher's <laughs> crossing his eyes at me going, that's not interesting at all. But uh, one of the things I wanted to say is that that's not the first time a band from that era, which was not a new wave band, was, was pegged a new wave band. But what when were they? Pe- I, I but, didn't
0: kind of get the gist of who, you know, who they identified as.
1: Well, well that's an excellent point. Well, the point I'm trying to make is that one band that was labeled a new wave band when they first started was Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. They were positioned huh. as new wave. When you first wow. heard, when you first heard Don't Do Me Like That, it didn't sound like in hindsight, it was completely rock and roll. Breakdowns—the first
0: thing I remember hearing. Yes,
1: yeah, uh, yes. And that's not new wave. No, it was not. Anyway, maybe I'm completely wrong, but I do know that at some point that he was he was marketed um, as more of a new wave act, and I, I'm just saying that around the time. It always depends on what time you come out. Sometimes you're considered to be part of a of a wave that you're not really part of.
0: Well, sure, because we were witnessing the end of the the punk era. Yeah. And very quickly, the reaction to it was strong and completely oppositional. New wave, new romantic, that kind of stuff. Yes, everything was overblown. There was tons of, of you know synthesizers and everything, as opposed to just raw, simple guitars. And as, mm-hmm. as he says, you know, sort of the four-piece instrumentation thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was uh, it was a time of sort of clashing styles, visually as well.
1: Yeah, that's true. You know who else was uh, was pegged as a new wave performer, but doesn't fit in there? uh joe jackson joe jackson was such a multi-talented musician mm-hmm. and and he comes out with uh is she really going out with him and everybody thinks this is so new wave um and even the way he dressed sometimes but boy then you see what he what he turned into and he didn't quite fit that mold and anyway, well, they compared
0: him to elvis costello at first I yes
1: think, yes you know. that's true um anyway so let's get back to tommy two-tone despite uh, Christopher's best efforts he's actually holding me back from the microphone right now um and uh talking about their biggest hit Jenny 867-5309
9: when I wrote the song I wrote it with uh, a buddy of mine named Alex Claw, and uh it was uh you know it's kind of like half truth half myth uh you know it's uh I mean there was a there was a girl named Jenny who lit, lit, did live at that phone number um but she doesn't live there anymore, and nor does she have that phone number anymore. And, uh, you know, we kind of put together a uh, story from, you know, half-truths kind of at any rate, uh, she doesn't talk to me anymore and uh, refuses to answer my phone calls. So, and I don't
1: blame her. <laughs> that's good. Okay, I like them now. Okay, good. So, so eight six seven five three zero nine became a number that people called in every area code, yes, do right? Do not
0: call this that, number.
1: That's right. And there's been a few examples of that over over the many years um, of people calling specific numbers. Beachwood four five seven eight nine. That's correct. And wasn't there a Sir Mix-a-Lot number? That he says in uh, Baby Got Back. He, I think he does a number in that song, and that went crazy as well. So, anyway, there's Tommy Two Tone, New Wave or Not, um, One Hit Wonder with 867 5309. And now, another One Hit Wonder. Do you remember this song? And a good heart
7: these days is hard to find. A good heart. You love the less love
1: that the is Fergal Sharky is and a Good Heart. And that was a big, kind of new wave-ish, oh, and there I go again, pigeonholing people into categories, uh, hit from mid-80s, I think 84, 85, and I discovered this interview with, uh, with him uh, from around that time, and uh, it's only about two and a half minutes long, but it's just terrific, and it, he says a lot about his sound. Uh, here he is, Fergal Sharkey from the mid-80s.
6: Fergal Sharkey. I've been reading some uh, very favourable critic reviews of your album, and uh, even the critics that that disagree with the arrangements or the songs or just can't get into it, Mm -hmm. they all seem to agree that one thing holds the album together, and that's your voice. Oh, good. Um, They seem to find an an emotional link, uh, that your voice cuts through the arrangements just like,
10: Um, unbelievably. Well, The reason it cuts through the arrangements is probably why they I recorded it. Um, As in what I do... Instead of the band basically going in and playing, and then me going in last and trying to sing over the top of all this rubbish, um, I do the vocal first, and mm. then put everything else on. Is so that right? So at no time does anything take away or detract from the What do you use as your lead, then, um, when you're doing the vocal? Oh, I simply use a drum machine in one synth. Just, you know, quick chord structure, me, 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 me. Bit of drum machine. And, and, then is it,
6: and then it's piece by piece, every um, instrument yeah. follows after that. Yeah,
10: put it on one at a time after that. Is that indicative simple. of the type of recording that's going on these days? Uh, no, 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 no. I think most people actually still do it the normal way, where the band goes in, plays in the studio, mm-hmm. and then the singers left to sort of try and do the best he can after the guitar players put on 14 tracks of guitar or whatever, just because he bought a new guitar that day has to have mm. it on the record. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. There's still quite a lot of that goes on, I imagine. To me, it is emotional records. I suppose that people like to call soul records or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Dave and I just felt that all that had gone horribly wrong somewhere that sort of all the great black musicians have now become very sort of slick disco and things in a way and lost what made Motown great. Um And we just felt that was fairly sad and we just felt it was about time somebody tried to recapture some of it into me. So mm-hmm. I, I did the best
1: that I could. Okay, there you go. That's Fergal Sharkey from 1985 talking about
0: uh, his influences and his sound. And it is really interesting. Musicians love getting all obscure, don't they? Yes. Talking about... You know, recording techniques and all that. I, do you know how quickly you lose the audience? You can hear, zzz, you know, from coast to coast. <laughs> I think he was kind of slagging off like Diana Ross working with Nile Rodgers sort of stuff, wasn't he? Because he was talking about how Motown had lost its soul. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, but he might have been
1: slagging off Diana Ross working with Christopher Ward, which you did. Well, that's another story. And what? Uh, what
0: year was that? Did you work? What year did you work with her? Mm, 1999. Okay. More about that story and many more on an upcoming edition of Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Joking. Special thanks to our producer, Adam Karsh. Talk to you next time.